I feel profoundly privileged to be speaking for the next few minutes with Simon Goodman, the author of an extraordinarily moving and fascinating and also, uh, in, in many respects, heartbreaking book called The Orpheus Clock, The Search for My Family's Art Treasures Stolen by the Nazis. In many respects, that, that title says it all. One can kind of imagine the, the world of pain and injustice which this story uh, touches upon. Uh, and it is, uh, of course, a deeply personal story for Simon Goodman. He is not just writing about this search for justice and closure, but it is something that he himself has experienced, has, has lived through. And um, we are talking about a, a journey of, 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 of decades uh, as he has uh, sought to understand what became of the priceless uh, art collection which had been part of his part of his family uh in the in the care of his own grandfather uh who along with his wife and 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 others uh, countless others were extinguished in the holocaust and uh that journey that long journey which in 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 many respects is is not over yet is told beautifully in this book published by Scribner. And I'm very honored to be speaking with Simon Goodman about his book, The Orpheus Clock, The Search for My Family's Art Treasures Stolen by the Nazis. Simon Goodman, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I appreciate this opportunity very much. Um, your your book uh, begins, uh, I think, in, in quite uh, intriguing fashion with you and your brother Nick yes. uh, opening uh, a number of, of boxes. Uh, this is not long after your own father's death. Uh, explain to our listeners what you found in these boxes and the the uh, intriguing mystery which they represented. Yes, well, my brother and I grew up in London after the war, really in the dark. We had very little idea what our father did. He was a very uncommunicative man, and... Uh, we had virtually no idea of our family history either. I mean, we, we just about had a vague knowledge that our, our grandparents had somehow died in the war and they did have a few paintings. Um, I had no idea really how many uh, and particularly what they were. So it's really not until my poor father dies and uh, his girlfriend sends us all his saved correspondence and uh, dog-eared art catalogs that uh, we're actually able to piece together what he did for all those years after the war. He was always traveling, but um, I thought, I mean, he eventually he took a job as a travel agent, but um, in a sense it was a cover. I mean, he was going from one government office and uh, art museum to another, and he was relentless in his pursuit of what we now ha have discovered it was uh, an extremely large and significant, important art collection that belonged to his father, my grandfather, and some of it even to our great-grandfather before that. So these boxes were a revelation, and um, they changed my life. Uh, amongst many, uh, there were inventories, uh, Nazi inventories in some cases, of my grandparents' home, all sorts of letters to the big auction houses and government offices after the war. And uh, also there were uh, three wartime negatives, which we discovered were of 
three Impressionist paintings, and that's what really changed my life. Two of them were by the uh, French painter Edgar Degas, and uh, so I went looking for Degas, and my brother, the other third one, was of a Renoir uh, landscape. My brother went looking for Renoir. I found um, one of our Degas in uh, 96, I guess it was, in Chicago, here in the States. So, um, and that started what apparently had been the first Nazi looting case, legal court case, since uh, since the war. So uh, I didn't know if it was possible, but we, we did get some kind of settlement. It wasn't ideal. Um, I've since learned how to... <laughs> you know, of, avoid lawyers where possible and, and approach <laughs> museums and collectors direct. But um, there we have it. Uh, that, that Finding that Dugas landscape uh, changed my life, and that was 20 years ago now, and I've been on the, the hunt ever since hmm. with a certain amount of success, I'm pleased to say. Before we trace back the, the, the story of your family, I mean, your, your great-grandfather and your grandfather and so yeah. on, I think it's important for us to talk a little more about your own father's intense silence on so many matters. You, right. you tell us again in the, uh, the opening chapter that the, while other families still talked about the war constantly, uh, that topic was strangely off-limits, almost taboo in your family, and moreover, uh, any discussion about uh, about your 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 extended family and, and 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 preceding generations was, if anything, even more off limits. Uh, talk more about living with that veil of silence and the sense of otherness, which you tell us uh, was was one of the consequences uh, for you and your brother, I presume. Well, that's right. It was I. In retrospect, I realized it was quite an unsettling upbringing because I had very little family that I was aware of. So in a sense, it was quite a, a, a lonely uh, w way of life. I mean, except I had many friends from school and things. So uh, that compensated. Uh, yes, everybody else after the war in London was still talking about the war. And we were justly very proud of the fact we'd won. It had been a, a long, bitter battle, but uh, my father, apart from some of the obvious great victories, wouldn't uh, discuss it at all. And uh, his family, as we turned out, well, I mean, we, we had no idea of who the, his family were. And, I mean, it, it's odd. It turned out they were even cousins in London. But um, the survivors from the, the war, from the Holocaust, uh, sadly all fell out, it seems, and uh, didn't talk to each other for years. They, they, there'd been a bitter dispute over what little of the family estate was left, and um, it was my father's unfortunate task to try and settle the family estate, and uh, nobody else was very happy. Obviously, there was much less than anybody expected, and um, so there were these bitter feuds, which Years, years later, I was actually able to settle, finally, which is what one of the wonderful aspects of me finding the Orpheus clock, uh, because I, I, it, 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 it enabled me to contact all these far-flung cousins, or the sons of my 
children of my, my father's cousins and relatives and uh, effectively reunite the family. We, we, we get to fashion a new family contract and uh, we're, we're, I guess we're all friends now. So it, it, it's, 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 a, it's a remarkable change, which mm. is why that's why I, I call the book The Orpheus Clock because that's where I, I end the story on, on a positive note. Mm. But uh, my, my father was a, a very sad, damaged man. Mm. And uh, like, like so many who came through the war and the Holocaust, um, his generation weren't able to talk about it. Mm. Uh, it, it, it. In a sense, it had to wait for the generation after, my generation, to break through the silence. You tell us that there would be these tiny little glimpses uh, that you would be given into your your background, and uh, but but those glimpses uh, initially made very little impression on you. I, I want to just read uh, a portion of this uh, chapter. Uh, you said at this time my scant knowledge of this history did not much affect me. Any real sense of loss would only come later. Uh, in, in terms of talking about what your family had, had lost. But by the third or fourth generation, these stories usually become nothing more than interesting and perhaps only half-believed bits of family lore and legend. Young men think of their own futures, not someone else's past. And you go on to say, by that time, you were living in Los Angeles. Yeah. And in all the world, there probably is no place less conducive to pondering the past than L.A. I think that's a really interesting aspect of, of all of this experience for you, is the fact that you found yourself, because of this treasure trove of documents that you and your brother uh, found yourselves uh, pouring through, you found yourself sort of thrust into your family's history and compelled to, to uh, investigate it in a way that's... Uh, uh, I mean, in terms of going after it with such relentless dedication is, is I should think, quite uncommon and something that I'm sure came as uh, quite unexpected to you. Um, I didn't, yes, I had no idea my, my life would change so dramatically. But when I was able to examine the contents of those boxes quite thoroughly, it, it became evident what my father had been trying to do and it was a it was a great eye-opener also it was very comforting in a way to understand the the reasoning behind his silence it it was something that had always bothered me growing up and uh, suddenly i i knew why he was so troubled and had such a problem communicating also i understood why he didn't want me or my brother to carry on <laughs> along this path because after a few sort of successes immediately after the war he uh he really encountered nothing but rejection and uh frustration as one door after another was slammed in his face so you know he he continued to try through the 60s through the 70s even the 80s without any success so uh, I, I finally understood why he was such a disappointed man. Uh, and uh, so I, I, there was a huge outpouring of emotion, I suppose, on, on my behalf, that um, at last it made sense. And, and from that point on, I felt compelled to try and fix whatever I could 
um, in in his memory, I suppose. Um, also, I was uh, by that point angry when I realised that the scale of what had been taken from us and the lies and deceit that had gone on not only during the Holocaust era, but to perhaps your listeners' surprise, also after the war. Um, governments, I mean, my family in particular had to deal with the Dutch and the French government and also the West German government. And uh, it seemed to me that they went out of their way to stonewall us and no doubt other families in, some, in, you know, in a similar situation. Hmm. Uh, so I was angry, and, and it occurred to me and my brother that maybe we could do a little something about it. Sure, and I suspect that this also gave you a sense of emotional connectedness with your, your father that yeah. you probably really never had uh, while he was alive. But, uh, but even from the grave, you felt as though uh, you were continuing the quest which he had engaged in for decades yes. to try to secure some kind of justice for your family. Yes. So, so every little success I've encountered since has been very satisfying because it's not just for me, but it's for my father, it's for his father and our greater family. And it, I, it gives me an opportunity to reestablish our legacy. We were a very famous, well-known family in Germany before the war, and I now realize their history was almost obliterated. They'd kind of disappeared from the history books. Um, so this was my opportunity of putting our history back in place and my uh, chance to discover my roots and, and, and where we'd come from and why all this had happened. So it, it's been a very therapeutic process. It all, it all makes sense to me now. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Simon Goodman, the author of, a, of an extraordinary book called The Orpheus Clock, The Search for My Family's Art Treasures Stolen by the Nazis. Simon Goodman, in this book, uh, looks back at his own family's history, their roots back in Germany, an extraordinarily wealthy family, uh, which had one of the most amazing, uh, spectacular art collections in all the world. Uh, an art collection which ultimately was ruthlessly plundered by the Nazis. And, uh, and the book, in part, is Simon Goodman's, uh, the story of Simon Goodman's uh, tireless uh, pursuit of those uh, art treasures uh, to, uh, to bring them back to the family uh, where they uh, un un indisputably belong. Simon Goodman, before we talk a little bit about your family, I wonder if you would just say a word about uh, what, kinds, what kind of work it was to uncover all that you did in terms of uh, an amazing array of details about your, your family back in Germany, extending back generations. I just cannot begin to, to fathom how you were able to uncover so much of their story, and I don't mean uh, just the story of, of, of the horror that engulfed them in, in, uh, during the Holocaust, but generations before that. Uh, to, to what lengths did you have to go to, uh, in, in order to be able to tell this story with the kind of thrilling detail that you do? Uh, I suppose I've gone to extraordinary lengths. I, I was determined to uncover the truth. Um, much of what I've found comes from 
national archives, the U.S. national archives to do with World War II, uh, British, French archives, German archives. It's interesting that you see all of these archives sealed anything to do with the, the, the Nazi era um, until, uh, you know, all, they were all considered state secrets until 1995. So my story, in a sense, is a modern story because this, a lot of this information was under wraps for half a century. Uh, on top of which, going back before the war, um, again, it's a modern story. The Internet came about. Uh, I was stunned to, when I searched for my great-grandfather in Google Books, for instance, something like 12,000 entries come up today. Wow. <laughs> of, of, I mean, a lot of it uh, is misinformation and, and, and mistakes, but there is still a lot there. And um, so, so in this age of information, you know, uh, I, I've been very fortunate. I also right next, well, quite near where I live here in Los Angeles, the, the Getty Research Institute um, has a vast... Uh, today of original correspondence of uh, old European art galleries, a huge store of original photos, um, every art magazine going back to the 19th century. Um, so also back to Google, uh, I, I can find one book published in 1910 that mentions my family, and there's one copy left. It's being sold by some little antique book dealer in the middle of Belgium. Um, <laughs> I'll buy it for 30 euros. So I, I've amassed a, a, a very large library in the process of what I do. Um, I'll, I'll collect every bit of information I can. I, I bought uh, every, every memoir I could find um, written by survivors of Theresienstadt, the concentration camp, for instance, which is how I was able to piece together the year my grandparents were in that camp. Um, today, also, there's actually a historical society in Germany named after my family, so now the sort of veil of secrecy is being lifted somewhat because they, they were a very important, powerful family. I mean... Um, the bank, the Dresdner Bank my family founded, was the first to offer checking accounts and saving accounts to the general public. And uh, so they, they were, and, and branch offices right across the new German empire. So it was a huge success. Uh, they, they made quite a fortune, a lot of which was reinvested in um, the expanding the new German industrial um, economy. So... Um, in a way, the family were instrumental in, in helping create modern Germany. Hmm. Unfortunately, yeah. they also financed the armaments industry, much to my <laughs> chagrin. But you call it one of the ultimate ironies of yes. your family's yes. history. Yes. I appreciated the fact that uh, you not only outlined for us your, your great-grandfather Eugen Gutmann's uh, extraordinary success uh, in the field of banking with this groundbreaking bank which he helped to uh, to, to create yes. but you also give us uh, a a personal portrait of him that I I found to be I, I was surprised by the rich detail uh, which which you are able to supply in terms of telling us what kind of husband he was what kind of father he was uh, uh, how were you able to fashion that 
part of the portrait of your great-grandfather? Um, it, it was difficult. From uh, my, my, In my father's boxes was a very small little memory uh, uh, memoir that my father had written just before he died, as it turned out. The... Uh, the Dresdner Bank, the new Dresdner Bank in Germany, now headquartered in Frankfurt, had actually asked him for his reminiscences, reminiscences, excuse me, of his grandfather. So that gave me a bit of detail. There were in his boxes actually a couple of letters from my great grandfather to my grandfather. One when he was promoted to director of the London branch, and uh, another one about. Uh, how much money he would need before he'd have to marry so he could live in the, you know, uh, style the family were accustomed to. So there were a few little snippets around which I was able to build um, the, the, the portrait. Um, also, following the art collection he amassed helped me get, gain an insight into his character. Um, and then I found it in other memoirs of famous bankers and German politicians. They'd mention uh, what it was like when they met him. So f from different sources, I was able to piece together a, a, a good image of this obvious man who died in 1925 that I, I, I never knew. Today, I have a portrait, actually, that is hanging over my desk right now as we speak which I, I found by chance at an auction in Cologne. And uh, I feel he brings me good luck. Hmm. Um, so he, he looks over my work, and sometimes I, I feel in, inspired by his aura, so I to sh speak. I should think. You finish this portion of the book with these words. So this was my great-grandfather, a pillar of finance and industry, a social lion, a man of enormous wealth, a respected and widely renowned connoisseur of art, and a loving father of a large and happy brood of children. He would seem to be the qu quintessential man who has everything. Yeah. Let's talk about the, 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 the genesis of the so-called Gutmann art collection. Um, and and I, I appreciated the, the way in which you not only detail the, the, the kinds of pieces he 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 secured and the caution with which he put this art collection together, but also what such a collection of art typically meant, particularly uh, in, in that, that era. Why was it that someone in your great-grandfather's uh, station of life would, would, would uh, take such pains to assemble such an extraordinary art collection? What do you think it represented for him? Um, well, apart from the fact he clearly loved these pieces and, and uh, enjoyed the hunt for a, a particular, particularly fine Majolica dish or early Renaissance silver cup, whatever it was he, he was focusing his collection on at that time. Also, um, it was, there was a social uh, connection, you know, a social facet to having such a collection in those days. His, his, the Gutmann silver collection was actually likened by a, a famous Berlin art historian of, of the 19th century to the collection of a prince, so, which actually made a lot of people jealous, even the Kaiser, apparently. So the point was, it was a symbol of, uh, I think, Jewish emancipation, 
it, 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 it said very loudly and clearly, we have arrived and we are anybody's equal. Um, and, and also he was taking a leaf out of the Rothschild collection in Frankfurt, which some of the pieces in our collection actually came from. Also, I think he was inspired as a boy by the collection of the kings of Saxony. Uh, in the corner of the palace in Dresden, the capital, is a, a marvelous place, which is now open, has been open to the public for quite a while, actually, called the Green Vault, or Grünes Gewölbe, which uh, has probably the, the best assembly of the kind of artworks and objets that uh, my great-grandfather collected, things like gilded nautilus cups and, uh, you know, silver-framed ivory goblets and all, all, all that. So, I mean, that, that, I think, inspired him as a boy. He was shown around by, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the son of uh, actually the, the, the court Jew who was called... Uh, Kaskill, who was a family friend. Mm. You you tell us that uh, your great-grandfather, Eugen, seemed to have a, a, an especial uh, appreciation and fascination uh, with pieces that combined beauty and function. And certainly that would be one of the reasons why he found himself drawn to that priceless work of art, which also gives your book its title, The uh, Orpheus Clock, which... Uh, he laid eyes on in Paris. Tell our listeners more about the Orpheus clock, who had first created it, and why this represented something of, of extraordinary beauty and rarity. Uh, well, th there are apparently about 10 or 11 so-called Orpheus clocks still in existence to this day, but they're all actually made by different goldsmiths. But they all the goldsmiths were centered in Bavaria, either in Nuremberg or Augsburg, which uh, Nuremberg was the capital of the German or the Holy Roman Empire at the time, which is why all the great jewelers, goldsmiths, silversmiths came from, worked in that area. Our particular one, I'm proud to say, was considered possibly the greatest. The, the dial uh, was fashioned by Wenzel Jamnitzer, who was probably the preeminent goldsmith of his time. And it's, it's, it's a very incredibly elaborate, beautiful, enigmatic. I mean, it took me a while to see even where the hand was. There's only one hand, by the way. Hmm. It, 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 it's an absolutely fascinating, beautiful piece. And yet it combines great uh, mechanical skill that is obviously hidden from the viewer that's inside the case. So it's a remarkable combination of great artistic achievement and advanced scientific achievement for the day. Uh, there were many such thick pieces in his collection. He had a, what were called uh, quite a series of automatons. One, my uh, surviving aunt, who's now 97 and lives in Italy's favorite, it, it was brought out to her for, on special occasions, was a... Uh, an ostrich that would flap its wings every hour, and there was a little gold monkey in front of it that would beat its drum. Um, there was another silver Dutch lady that would strum a lute. Um, these were extraordinary mechanical toys, I suppose, but fashioned out of beautiful materials. And uh, 
exquisitely put together. So I'm, I'm not surprised he was fascinated by all this. I've become, <laughs> if following in his footsteps, equally fascinated. Hmm. You, and, yeah. in dis- in you, as you describe this specific clock, the Orpheus clock, you say, uh, as, as, uh, as if you visualize all of its uh, uh, exquisite features, you say one has an idea of the mechanical mastery and artistic genius of this clock. We're speaking with Simon Goodman about his book called The Orpheus Clock. I think it's so telling that uh, towards the end of the chapter that you focus specifically on your great-grandfather Eugen Gutmann, uh, that when you describe uh, his children and something about their lives, and in particular his youngest child, uh, his son Fritz, your grandfather, you end the chapter in this way by saying, unlike Eugen, who had lived in an era and in a country that, though flawed, had allowed him to flourish and prosper, Fritz was entering an era of upheaval and great uncertainty. Uh, I'm so glad that you make that observation because I think for many of us who maybe look at history through too casual and careless an eye, that is the kind of, of that's the kind of thing that we, we tend to, to, to not think about. The fact that, in a sense, timing is everything. And that uh, the circumstances in which one is living can, can make all the difference between a life of happiness and prosperity and a life that uh, descends uh, into unspeakable horrors. And that is the distinction between these two men. Well, that's right. My, my poor grandfather had the misfortune of uh, being in two world wars. So uh, his father's life, in comparison, was one of uh, peace and luxury. I mean, uh, the, the, the Germans had a war with France, the Franco-Prussian War, but the Germans won, and there wasn't any conflict, actually, on German soil. So Germany was largely a peaceful com- country during my great-grandfather's life, and also, it, 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 it coincided with uh, an enormous advancement in the, the social, economic uh, conditions of German Jews. So my, my grandfather, in a way, epitomizes that, that rise, and his father before him, too. Whereas my grandfather suddenly is thrust into the turmoil of the, the t- early 20th century, um, even the First World War, I I devote a a fair amount of description to that. He spends the First World War in a British camp. Poor man. Right. Uh, On on the Isle of Man. It's it's his... You say Fritz's incarceration began in a rather civilized manner. Um, Explain why he was incarcerated. Well, because he was a German citizen. Uh, It was as simple as that. World War I broke out uh, unexpectedly. I mean, people were sus- expected that, that there would be maybe a war at some point, but nobody knew when. And then when Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo, suddenly all hell let loose. My grandfather was the director of the London branch of the Dresdner Bank at the time. And so they, they, they lived in Surrey, just south of London. My father was actually born there, which is fortunate, so he qualified for a British passport. Um, and uh, when First World War was declared, all 
able-bodied men of uh, German and Austrian citizenship were rounded up. The women and children were let go. So my grandmother with her baby, my father, uh, were allowed to get on a, a, a freight ship some, and, and sail to a neutral country, Holland or Sweden, you know. Uh, and my, my grandfather was uh, taken up to the Isle of Man, you know, sort of lonely, windswept island in the Irish Sea. Mm. Uh, and he stayed there for about three years until a, a Swedish diplomat, a family relative actually, was able to have him exchange. They, they did a sort of prisoner of war exchange, and he, he ended up in Holland himself, which is where he decided um, he actually liked the peace of Holland, which had been neutral in the First World War, and he decided to settle there. Hmm. Also, prophetically, because I think he wanted to distance himself from Germany. Right. Uh, so, so he was interned in a place uh, roughly comparable to the uh, infamous Japanese internment camps here in America during the Second World War. This was uh, a sort of comparable experience. I, I do want you to take a moment to explain one of the most extraordinary, though small, moments in this epic story, namely the uh, astonishing surprise which uh which you found uh in a small shop which brought you a tangible connection to this chapter of your grandfather's life oh yes i i well i i, I was in holland uh, i've been often you know and i i go through all the museums and and i i was actually in a sort of antique bookshop um and uh quite by chance. I don't know if it's by chance or if, if, if there's something leading me to these things, because I've found many uh, artifacts that had once belonged to my family, so I, I wonder how... I mean, anyway, I, I, I have a sixth sense, perhaps, for this. I found uh, the first print of a uh, ex libris seal that uh, another inmate who was obviously an artist, an artisan, who, and who had been incarcerated with my grandfather on the Isle of Man during the First World War. He, he'd made this ex libris stamp for, for, so that my grandfather could, you know, imprint all the books in his library with it. And, and this was the first sort of etching of what the, the, the stamp, the seal, would look like. And he'd signed it and dated it Douglas, which is the sort of capital of the Isle of Man, 1917. And so this little engraving was in, in a, a smallish frame, about sort of eight by eight. Um, and I saw it hanging on the wall behind this uh, musty bookshelf. <laughs> hmm. and, 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 I, and I realized that, that it, you know, if I squinted, it, it, it had... Uh, it says Ex Libris F.B. Gutmann, which are, those are the initials and family name of my grandfather. So, of course, I, I bought it right away. I tried to conceal my excitement because I didn't want to, <laughs> you know, put myself in a position where they charged me twice as what they would get from anybody <laughs> else. But uh, So I kept my cool and, and, and bought it for quite a reasonable price and took off. And, I mean, this was in, I was outside The Hague, so this actually wasn't far from my grandfather's last 
residence before he was arrested by the Nazis. So, you know, I can only imagine it was probably one of those little things that was left behind by the Nazi looters who they, they left the crumbs to the sort of the, Germ- the, the, the Dutch collaborators. Hmm. Who, who stripped the house of the final bits and pieces that was even down to the pots and pans in the kitchen. Wow. Um, so this is probably somebody had taken it out of the house in 1943, and uh, it had ended up, you know, here we are in, in, in 2000 um, in, in this antique bookshop. Just, I mean, The Hague is only about 25 miles from my grandparents' old home. Hmm. One of the things I appreciate about the uh, the portion of the book in which you describe your your uh, grandfather Fritz and his wife, their life in Holland between the wars, is that you help us understand how he and other members of your family and other other members of this sort of sector of of German society uh, and and those who were living in other places like Holland, how they could possibly miss the mounting horror with the rise of of Nazism until, in so many cases, tragically, it was too late for them to save themselves from it. And I think, for again, for many of us who look back on this portion of history, it's such a hard thing for us to understand. And so especially, of course, a tragic story for your your grandfather who, who made the choice not to leave Holland and flee for England yeah. uh, like others were. Yeah. Um, say a word about this portion of the story in which you try to kind of understand uh, maybe the, the seeming unwillingness or inability of, of, of some people to understand what was happening. Well, I suppose because nothing quite as awful as the Holocaust had ever taken place in history before. Um, Germany had been quite a civilized country. And and I think uh, people of my grandparents' generation understood that Hitler was a a crackpot, but they probably thought he could be controlled or or that um, he'd have his fling, you know, he'd have his day in power briefly and it would be a catastrophe and the Germans would kick him out. Um, and then my grandparents particularly had already moved countries. They'd settled in Holland. They were very happy and comfortable in Holland. Um, I, I think my grandfather just, you know, didn't feel able to, to leave again. Also, he was presiding over not just his own, most of his art collection, but also the, the family silver and gold collection that he was the custodian of, um, I guess he felt he couldn't just run and abandon it. I mean, um, everybody was surprised by how quickly the Germans invaded when they did and and, and how quickly Holland, Denmark, uh, you know, France, Belgium, they they all fell within a matter of days. It it took the British by surprise. It took everybody by surprise. My, My grandfather did actually, though, prophetically send my father in England a cable saying, don't come back. So mm. he, he sort of knew enough of what was perhaps going to happen to tell his children, stay away. And, and also he figured his daughter, my aunt, was safe in Italy for the time being. Mm. Um, and yet he couldn't leave himself. 
Right. You're, I think one of the most touching moments is in the book is this, uh, at the end of this chapter called The Ephemeral Peace. You write, Bernard, that would be your father, one yeah. of their sons, sent telegrams imploring Fritz and Louise to leave Holland and join him in Britain while there was still time. Stubbornly, Fritz refused, though he certainly had the means to do so. It's one of those situations in which I want to shout back across the generations to ask my grandfather why he stayed. Why didn't he and my grandmother drop everything and flee? But there are no answers. In the section of the book called Devastation, uh, you, of course, uh, recount this nightmare as it envelops um, your, your, your grandparents. And in particular, the, 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 the role that this priceless art collection played and the fact that it was plundered bit by bit uh, in, in which your, your grandfather was compelled to sign away portions of it to the Nazis, Uh, it's hard to even fathom what that would feel like for someone of your grandfather's station in life uh, to be be placed in such a a humiliating situation, uh, grasping after a hope that uh, his cooperation would somehow lead to the survival of himself and, and, and his wife, hopes, of course, that ultimately were dashed. Well, that's right. Um, he still, I suppose, at least at the beginning of the invasion of Holland, he, he thought he could negotiate with these people. Um, one of his neighbors, um, called uh, Catalina von Panwitz, through actually my grandfather's sort of brokerage, if you like, was able to turn over most of her collection to Goering's agents, and she was allowed to leave the country. So in, in the early days, there, there were, the, you know, it was a sort of a period of flux, but, but gradually, the, the, you know, the, the noose tightened, and they just peeled away at the collection bit by bit. Uh, you know, the money, what money theoretically ever was paid, very below market value, I mean, although whatever market value would have been in the middle of a war, you know, whatever pittance was paid went into a frozen bank account, and usually those banks at the end of the year transferred all what they called euphemistically abandoned Jewish assets. Uh, They were sent back to to Berlin, where it was transferred into Nazi war bonds, which is usually the the, the sort of shell game they played with their money. Bit by bit, everything was taken. I, I discovered a series of letters in uh, the German National Archives in Koblenz on the Rhine River between two of Hitler's top Nazi agents, a man called Haberstock and another one called Böhler, where they, <laughs> between themselves, magnanimously agree that they will leave my grandparents a certain amount of their furniture in the house, at least as long as they, quote-unquote, stay in the house. Mm. Um, which the implication was they realized that it wouldn't be long before they would no longer be there. But they they thought they were being such gentlemen, saying, well, we'll we'll leave them some chairs to sit on. Mm. Um, (laughs) But but eventually even those were taken away. And, of course, ultimately uh, your, your grandparents are taken into custody 
ultimately taken to Theresienstadt, yes. and ultimately their lives are extinguished al- yes. along with the lives of, of so many others lost in, in the Holocaust. In the last couple of minutes, I want us to return to what is the heart and soul of, of your book from that point on. That is your tireless efforts to secure um, at least some of the uh, incredible art treasures that had been part of your family once upon a time. As you have engaged in this struggle, which you recount in in fascinating uh, detail, uh, I wonder if you can say a word about what this quest has meant to you emotionally and and what have these successes some small some significant what have they meant to you on a very personal uh, sort of emotional level what has this quest brought to you well mostly it's been a very gratifying experience because it proves that one man i you know i used to be in the music business i had no idea of anything like this could ever be done achieved um, I'm surprised by what I have managed to do, uh, along with my brother and others, and I'm very proud of the fact that, because everybody warned me at the beginning, oh, you know, you, you can't change the past. Well, I beg to differ. I have somehow been able to reach back and tweak the past in some way. And if it's possible to right even the tiniest little wrong took place back then. Um, I feel very, very good about it. Also, I'm proud of the fact I was able to tell this story, and now the book is out there. Um, I hope a lot of people read it. I I think it's an important story, and there are aspects of it, certainly, that have never been told in such detail or from such a personal point of view, a family's point of view before. Exactly. So... so, um, all of this is a, is a big step in the right direction. I think along the way, I've seen a lot of changes, for instance, in the art world. When, when I started on this quest, the big auction houses were vehemently opposed to, to what my brother and I were doing. Today, however, they both have, the two big auction houses, have, have, have uh, restitution departments, well-stocked and staffed and and headed by quite powerful vice presidents who actually uh, I can count as my friends today. If something comes up at Sotheby's, for instance, with my family's name in the provenance, they actually call me. So uh, this is a huge step in the right direction, that it is possible for one little guy to make a difference, <laughs> is, is the bottom line. And, and I appreciate how you, you, you describe this as a... As a, as a as an injustice that was brought about in part by unscrupulous art dealers and willfully negligent auction houses, as well as museum directors and wealthy collectors, all party to this theft long after the war was over. A, a, a complicated landscape uh, into which you strode very bravely and have made a very big difference for the better. The book again is called The Orpheus Clock. The Search for My Family's Art Treasures Stolen by the Nazis, published by Scribner, with many photographs, including beautiful, full-color plates that show us some of the treasures that uh, are part of this Goodman family collection at the heart of this extraordinary story. Simon Goodman, thank you so much for writing such a brilliant and fascinating book and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. It's been a privilege. 
and it's been a pleasure to be with you this morning.